Broadcast out of New York City, you're listening to Prescriptions for Health on the Progressive Radio Network on Monday, August 4th, 2014. I'm Dr. Len Saputo. And I'm registered nurse Vicki Saputo. Thank you for joining us on Prescriptions for Health on the Progressive Radio Network on the first and third Monday of every month from 10 to 11 a.m. Eastern Time and from 7 to 8 a.m. Pacific Time. And remember that our shows are available 24-7 on prn.fm and drsaputo.com. Today you'll hear Nurse Vicki's 2020 health tips at 20 after and 20 to the hour. And we've got another great show for you today that's going to include our statins castrating men. Woo, that sounds ruthless. Ouch. Why HMO medicine has no future. And how nurturing feeds a baby's brain. And good news for Alzheimer's disease, a common nutritional supplement that improves memory. And some exciting benefits of taking probiotics that you might not have thought of. Yeah, we've been talking about those for a long time. I'll say. It's exciting. It's like every week there's something else new that they do. That's one of the most amazing things over the last 10 years that I've watched grow in the clinical practice. And yet 30 years ago, we knew about the microbiome. And what I mean by that is the microflora in the intestinal tract and how profound an effect it has on our health. You know, there's a lot of conflict of interest and controversy surrounding the statin drugs. And their dangerous side effects are mostly ignored, and the percentages of benefit are often misrepresented. Now, there's inadequate information that's relayed to doctors and patients, making it difficult to make informed decisions about whether to use these medicines or not. And statin drugs are drugs like Lipitor, Mevacor, Zocor, Crestor, Provacol, Lescol, so forth. And they're unsafe choices to reduce cholesterol. So new in the news is a recently exposed side effect. Sperm damage. Yeah, really. Who would have thunk, right? Yeah. And here we are, you know, so many times we'll study a drug and then find out it has a use that we never thought of. Like well, the drug that was out called Minipress, which is used for blood pressure. And today, what's it used for? To grow hair. hair on your head. <laughs> and now, if we know that little about what these drugs do, it really is a shock that we have the trust that we do. Well, just like the glaucoma drug that they used to, to grow eyelashes, Lutease. Yeah, yeah really. <laughs> you so, know, it looks like we can add statins to the list, list of toxins causing infertility because I've well, been noticing true. how um, in vitro fertilizations on the rise. And, and, of course, there are many reasons for infertility. I mean, we've got environmental toxins and pesticides and the BPAs and mm-hmm. fragrances and other sure. skincare products. But the statins? Yeah, really. Well, you know, there's a fellow named Sayer G. His last name is J.I., who's the editor and founder of Green Med Info. Really has a lot of great information on the site, and I highly recommend that you go to it. It's called greenmedinfo.com. And he reviewed a study in a journal called Reproductive Biology and Endocrinology that was out in July of 2014 and looked at the effects of Lipitor on sperm, seminal fluid, and on the sex hormones. And what they did is they went ahead and they evaluated the effects of 10 milligrams of Lipitor over five months in 17 normal men who had normal cholesterol levels. And during that period of treatment and for three months after, they went ahead and measured some things that had to do with reproductive function. What they found was was that the sperm count decreased 31%. It's a big number. The vitality of sperm, which determines whether or not it's going to be able to impregnate uh, a, uh, an egg, decreased 9.5%. Interesting that the total mobility increased 7.5%, which is a good thing, but then there were problems that had to do with morphology that were abnormal in different parts of the sperm. 
But that's not where it stopped. They also found that there was there were abnormalities in seminal fluid, which is the fluid in which the sperm are ejaculated. Uh, there were changes in, in enzymes like acid phosphatase and alpha-glucosidase uh, and an L-carnitine, all technical things that you may not know very much about, but they're telling you that there are changes in the biochemistry of the environment in which sperm are, are going to be put into. So it's telling us that not only do we have abnormalities in sperm and how they function, but also uh, in the epididymitis or the epididymal, the epididymis that makes the fluid in which sperm is is living in. So in other words, it makes a problem for fertilization. Absolutely. You so, know, yeah. I mean, and, and like I said earlier, it seems like there's an epidemic of this. You hear about multiple births because people are undergoing a lot of these procedures to mm-hmm. try to get pregnant and, you know, artificial insemination and all well, that kind of thing. Well, this all happens because we live in an environment that we've made toxic. Whether you put something in your body by swallowing it or you put it on your skin or you breathe it uh, or you eat it, okay, because it's in, in the food that we consume – doesn't make any difference. What matters is what we're exposing ourselves to and the profound effects it has on our health. And Lipitor is another example. Just one of the other things. You yeah. Know, along with all that, that I mentioned earlier about our environmental toxins and so forth. Well, that's right. But, you know, we've talked about the statins other times and on other shows, and they can have a lot of unpleasant side effects. But here in this article, they were saying that it could even cause some of the problems that they're supposed to correct, yeah. like weakening the heart muscle, contributing to congestive heart failure. Well, that's right. You look at, at something like a, like all the statins do, they not only block the production of cholesterol, they also block the production of something called coenzyme Q10. And that may not mean much to a lot of you, but without coenzyme Q10, you can't make energy, and particularly in the heart. And so if, if the levels of CoQ10 are dropped enough you'll actually put the heart in congestive heart failure, particularly if it already has some heart disease to start with. So when you, you're you starting to do something that has effects that are the opposite of what you're trying to do when you're using a drug or a technology, technology of some kind, you should think twice about it. Well, I thought it was also interesting that they said that it can cause um, could cause type 2 diabetes. That's well you known. Know, and here they're talking about uh, taking statins as prevention. <laughs> and if it can cause diabetes and, and congestive heart failure, but think about diabetes now too for a minute. One of the, the scary things about having diabetes is it can cause heart disease. Well, that's right. I mean, the, the people who are getting diabetes, either type 1 or type 2, are getting into problems with... Uh, heart disease, with strokes, with kidney insufficiency, with peripheral vascular disease, with peripheral neuropathies. And a lot of these things are, are worse than, okay, uh, what you might get if you had a high cholesterol and you're in a much lower risk for developing a heart attack than the people who say smoke or who have other kind of had heart attacks or strokes in the past. So what are their percentages and what, and what do they mean? Well, everybody's talking about how it prevents heart attacks and and lowers the risk by about 25%. But that's kind of like a meaningless statement unless you want to look across the board and include all people who were studied. But you look at certain groups of people, say uh, women who are uh, middle-aged women 
who may have a high cholesterol but but, but don't have any other problems that would suggest they have heart they're disease. They're basically health, healthy and yeah, low, basically risk healthy. Heart, low risk for heart yeah, disease. Yeah, you'd have to treat 23,000 people, according to these studies, for five years to save one life and cause all these other problems that we didn't mention yet but should mention now that can be a problem with the use of statins, which include muscle weakness, muscle necrosis, and if there's enough of it, uh, uh, you will have myoglobin, which is released from those inflamed muscles that plugs up your kidneys and cause kidney failure. It can cause peripheral neuropathies. It can cause liver disease. Uh, it, I mean, it, it does a lot of things that you, you don't want to have any part of. It can even affect your memory. Well, when you talk about weakening the muscles... <laughs> Think about what we just said earlier about weakening the heart muscle well, because right. the heart's a muscle too. Sure, and there's, that's, there, there's more than one mechanism for it. And then a lot of these people are at an age where many times you get aches and pains or little arthritis oh. or whatever. So many times it's overlooked that the cause of their of their sore muscles is from taking the medicine. And you know, doctors don't really appreciate that, and I can understand why. It's because we doctors tend to rely on drugs which all have potential side effects, and look for the good things that the drugs do. When you put a person on a drug, you don't expect to see the bad things. You expect to, to use the drug to do some good things. But there are always things that you have to worry about. And if you don't plan ahead for that, uh, you tend to have a negative attitude. So if somebody comes in and says, oh, my muscles are achy and sore and I'm weak now, in general, and about nine out of ten times, because studies have been done on this, the doctors say, oh, don't worry about it. It's probably nothing serious. Let's just stay on it. And when it comes time to report side effects to the CDC, which patients and doctors can do, patients report those side effects 90% of the time and doctors about 10% of the time, which shows you that their thinking is different. Patients are looking for the problems that develop from medications when they're affected by them, and doctors are not looking for them because they don't want to know about them. Well, plus there's this poor post-marketing surveillance. They don't follow people, you know, after they've been taking the drugs for years. Well, there are... I mean, they just get... The FDA has regulations. They do their side effects up at the beginning. So if you have a small study, a couple of thousand people, and you don't see a lot of side effects because the side effects aren't that common, you may have to do 10,000 people or 100,000 people or even a million people to see much of it. That's what post-approval uh, yeah, drugs are supposed to – that's why we have those studies. And so they are required by law from the FDA to do these post-surveillance studies, but they don't. Yeah, and why don't they? It. Well, they get by with it because the FDA is not enforcing it. And why should they go out and find all the reasons why their drug shouldn't be on the market because it's causing problems? Because their, their responsibility is to their stockholders, not to their patients, not the people who buy the drugs. Well, here's something else that will blow you away, that eight of the nine physicians that are on the committee for guidelines mm. had strong financial ties to the statin companies. Well, that's no surprise. I mean, you see that all the time because there's a collusion between the FDA, the CDC, the pharmaceutical industry. It's like a, there's a revolving door between those industries. I mean, you look at, at Julie Gerberding, who was the physician who was in charge of the CDC uh, until the time Barack Obama took office, and she was in charge of what? The vaccines, okay, for in in large part uh, through the CDC. When she retired from her post, she was invited and took a job from Merck, 
to be in charge of their vaccine department and making in, in the range of seven figures, probably that's what's been estimated, because of the relationship she had with the Merck vaccine people. And, of course, what she was supporting was the flu vaccine, the swine flu vaccine, which is shown to be a hoax by anybody who does reliable science. And here we go again. So we have these these kinds of problems that we're seeing that are ones that come up because we have conflicts of interest. We don't just operate the business of medicine in a way that's objective and scientific and in the best interest of the patient. What we do is we operate in the best interest financially of the people who make the drugs and regulate them, and then we cross-fertilize from those industries to the FDA and CDC, and we wind up with the mess we have. You know, everybody gets worried about their cholesterol, and they Mm -hmm. think if they have high cholesterol that that's bad, and this is when they start trying to reduce the cholesterol. Mm -hmm. But cholesterol that's too low can be a problem. And when the cholesterol is high, it's actually high because it's trying to heal the inflammation and the arterial damage that's going on for, going on in the arteries. Well, the ratio, okay, of the HDL and LDL is what you're talking about. And when the LDL goes way up and HDL goes down, that's a sign of inflammation. We see that. But we also know that cholesterol is your friend. It's something that you want. In fact, is you'd be dead without cholesterol. You must have it to make vitamin D, the sex hormones healthy cell membranes, to make the digestive enzymes to to digest fat, to make neurotransmitters. Uh, They're very important and necessary uh, part of our biochemistry. So cholesterol is something that's a good thing. What happens is cholesterol, when the body's inflamed, becomes oxidized. And when that oxidized cholesterol is formed, particularly LDL, it becomes toxic to blood vessels and it sets the stage for plaque to develop. But the height of cholesterol itself is not the problem. A cholesterol of 250 or 300 is a good cholesterol in a lot of settings. So in the setting where there's not a lot of inflammation and you've got a cholesterol of, say, 300 even, and you've got an HDL of 75 or more, that's a good place to be. Because of the ratio. (laughs) Because of the ratio and because it, it is a good thing to help you make all these other things we talked about a minute ago that have to do with the value of cholesterol in the human body. And the lab tests don't show the quality of the cholesterol. Well, it, it doesn't really. It, I mean, there are many different kinds of LDL cholesterol. There are nine different kinds of LDL cholesterol. There are five different kinds of HDL. And if you really want to look at the, at the chemistry of what's happening, you've got to order special tests to do that. But in general, when you've got a high cholesterol with good HDL values, that person gets sick and everything changes. That cholesterol of 250 or 300 may drop to 180 and the LDL may go way up and the HDL, which was 90 before or 75 before, may drop into the 30s. When you see that pattern happening, you've got problems. So it's just another example that tells you that you've got to know something about what's happening with the metabolism of the person that you're talking about. So each person becomes an individual. Now, using a statin to control certain people's situations is a good idea. So if somebody is a smoker and they've got type 2 diabetes already and and they've had a heart attack or a stroke and their cholesterol values are off the map and you can't get them to do the things that you'd like them to do to be able to do the lifestyle modification, put them on a statin because that is going to have some value over not using a statin in that setting. 
But like we gave the example before, if you have a, a woman in her, say, mid-50s and she's got a high cholesterol uh, and maybe a little bit too much LDL and not quite enough HDL, the risk of that person, if they have no other risk factors, is very much, is very low. And that's when you start to look at over-treating people because you lump them all into the same general pot. Yeah, that's when you were saying that it takes 23,000 people for five years just to prevent one death from the heart disease well, that's in those low-risk people. Well, that's what the literature that was done that came up with that number said. It's interesting. So what I would say is it sounds, it sounds strange to me too, but don't shoot the messenger. Mm-hmm. We're just reporting this stuff to you, letting you know that there are, is a downside to relying on drugs as your solution. Now, the other thing is, is that this drug alluded to the fact that this uh, reduction in sperm and all the things uh-huh. that have to do with fertilization mm-hmm. um, c- could affect future generations. Now, how, well, how would that work? Well, that's all conjecture, and it may well be true, but when you make genetic changes uh, in people, they can be carried on from generation to generation in some settings, and you, you don't really know when. You have to do the test to find out. So it is a concern that if we're changing the quality of sperm and the environment in which the sperm lives, I mean, you're looking for something that could be possibly carried on from generation to generation. And if that's the case, we'd be looking at more birth defects, more stillbirths, more problems with uh, development of the fetus that are related to toxic things that happen uh, in utero. So, yeah, these are all things that are important to look at because we have to look at the whole picture. And our tendency is to get complacent and, and figure that, you know, I remember when I was younger and I didn't know about these things and I was painting houses. I would put the, the paint thinner on my hands and I wouldn't think anything oh, of to it. To wash it off. To wash yeah. it off because what was I interested in? Having clean hands. I wasn't thinking about what will that do to my liver or to my detoxification or what about inhaling the paint, which in those days probably was lead paint. I mean, oh, there, yeah. well, before, you know, before 1980, a few years before that, we were using lead paint and I was a house painter when I was working through college. Maybe that's part of the reason why I didn't get all A's or, or scores that were better on my tests. I don't know. So well, this there was even some hinting that it could, could have neurological consequences like the risk of ALS and dementia. Well, these are interesting associations. And so there may be a slightly higher risk for people with uh, these kinds of problems. Uh, but they're certainly far from proven. But that's how we start uh, when we an- analyze something to find out if there is an association first between taking a certain drug and, and having a certain disease. But until you have done a prospective study, which means take one population, divide them in two, and treat one half and not the other and do it over a long term, you really don't know that answer for sure. So when we're looking at the statins, you know, they seem like the way the pharmaceutical companies make their ads, that they're the cat's meow and, and a lot of the time they've talked about making the poly pill and having everybody take it or even putting statins in the, the water. water. <laughs> I mean, it's like, what are they? I mean, this is a case of brainwashing that's so unbelievable that it, it's hard to think that anybody even thinks it. All right, you're listening to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Len Saputo here with Nurse Vicki, and it's time for Vicki's first 2020 tip on surprising facts about your brain. And when we come back... We're talking about why HMO medicine is doomed to fail. Since we're going to be talking about babies' brains and Alzheimer's later on in the show, 
I wanted to talk to you about some of the surprising facts about your brain. First of all, the weight of your brain is about three pounds. Wow. We usually hear, you know, if you want to lose 10 pounds, cut off your head. Well, that's, that's your whole, the whole head. head. Yeah. <laughs> and your brain is made up of 75% water. It consists of about 100 billion neurons. Wow. Now, there's a gap when you're looking at the weight of it and the number of neurons. That's stunning. Well, and there's anywhere from 1,000 to 10,000 synapses for each neuron. God, talk about complicated. Wow. And I thought this was kind of surprising, that there's no pain receptors in your brain, so your brain can't feel any pain. That's why neurosurgeons can go into the brain and you don't feel a thing. It seems weird. That's why some people eat monkey brains when their monkey's alive. Yeah, don't go into that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I think that's another whole story, Vicki. Well, anyway, (laughs) there are 100,000 miles of blood vessels in your brain. Another stunning fact. That's just hard. 100,000 miles. Yeah, of blood vessels in your brain. (laughs) A little technical. And your brain is the fattest organ in your body, Uh and it may consist of at least 60% fat. Uh Uh-huh, it does. At birth, your brain was almost the same size as an adult brain. And it contained most of the brain cells for your whole life. And a newborn baby's brain grows about three times its size in the first year. Hmm. Interesting. Humans continue to make neurons throughout their life in response to mental activity. Now, your brain uses 20% of the total oxygen in your body. And it loses blood for 8 to 10 seconds, then you lose consciousness. So if somebody's strangling you, it only takes 8 to 10 seconds to pass out. That's right. Wow. And while you're awake, your brain generates between like 10 to 23 watts of power, but that's enough energy to power a whole a light bulb. Yeah, it's also an amazing thing at what the brain can do. I mean, talk about all 100,000 miles of, of, of blood vessels and <laughs> 10,000 connections for a neuron. I mean, that's just wild. How it works will be a wonderful thing to unravel if we ever do. And every part of the brain has a known function. Mm -hmm. It can live for four to six minutes without oxygen, Mm -hmm. and then it begins to die. And no oxygen for five to ten minutes will result in permanent brain damage. Right. So it takes eight to ten seconds to pass out, but five to ten minutes to die. So there was a big study that that showed that um, kids who ate lunch at school uh-huh. and didn't include artificial flavors, preservatives, and dyes, they did 14% better on their uh, IQ tests. Yeah. They also did better if you gave them one healthy meal or included fish in their meal. Violence went down 43%. That, right. That was in prisons and in school in New York. And 50 to 70% of visits to the doctor for physical ailments are attributed to psychological factors. And that's being conservative in my book. Every time you recall a memory or you have a new thought, you're creating a new connection in your brain. And memories that are triggered by scent have a stronger emotional connection. And also, the lack of sleep may actually hurt your ability to create new memories because at night is the time for your brain to consolidate your memories from the day and so forth. And most people dream one to two hours a night, and they have an average of four to seven dreams every night. Mm -hmm. And the brain waves are more active while you're dreaming than while you're awake. Yeah. Anyway, your your brain's like a muscle, so your brain structure changes over time, and it may be possible to bulk up your brain throughout a lot of your adulthood. And so continuing to stimulate and challenge your brain as you get older might promote its growth, just as exercise builds muscle. Sure. So this means that the opposite may hold true, too. Like 
that drug use, poor nutrition, and other assaults on your brain, uh, even in adulthood, could interfere with your brain's full development. That's actually becoming common sense now. It's either you, you use it or you lose it. And it's a particular good thing for people who have senile dementia or Alzheimer's uh, to do a lot of mental exercise as well as physical exercise to get those brain cells to, to do what yeah, they Yeah, because your brain is resilient and is capable of growing new cells to repair itself. Absolutely. So that's enough of that. And now we're going to get on to some of our topics here. Like when we're sick, you know, we want to get the best doctors and we want to get the best care that we can, especially if we have a serious illness. But this has become the exception rather than the rule with HMO medicine and with the Affordable Care Act. So is it really possible to get good care with more patients and fewer doctors at lower rates? Where is the incentive to become a doctor anymore when the insurance companies are the authority and the doctors can't individualize their patient care due to insurance protocols? So do you think medicine can ever go back to being a service first rather than a than a business? Well, not, not in today's culture and not in today's business world. There's no chance of that. <clears throat> I followed the history of how this has progressed since 1970, at which time I was one of the first doctors who had the idea of a doctor's union, and we actually started one in 1971 or something like that. And the problem was is that doctors are trying – getting them together is like herding cats. They're, just, they're more interested in doing their work, very dedicated to doing the right thing, very well trained by the standards that we have. But what are they learning? Uh, we're learning to be independent and adversarial in a lot of ways when it comes to working together. Uh, we certainly don't work with other disciplines well. We don't even work with sometimes our, our own discipline that well. So when you're looking at at what happened, it was inevitable that the way we went about practicing medicine, we were going to have a problem uh, with trying to keep costs at a reasonable place rather than being able to spend money as freely as we wanted to because we weren't paying the bills and insurance companies weren't particularly happy about that. Although what turned out to be the case is that the amount of money that was being spent would be recovered by the premiums. Well, over the next 15 or 20 years, or, or yeah, about 20 years, what happened is doctors gave up their responsibility for controlling costs in any way and said, look, we're doctors. We want to do what we do best, which is do medicine. You people out there who are the bankers and the insurance companies, you worry about the finances. And they said, thank you very much. We can do that. And they did. And I remember giving lectures in the early 1990s at my hospital saying, this is a disaster in the making. If we don't take over the responsibility of the purse strings of medicine, we're going to be in big trouble because as soon as we're working for somebody else, they're going to tell us what to do and they'll be in a position where they own the practices and they'll just get rid of you and you won't have a practice well, anymore. Well, the doctors just sold out authority to the insurance companies for exactly. money. Exactly, and to the hospitals and to any and to the HMOs that ran them. So now it's become a business versus a service. Well, and, the, the, and that's why the care is less personalized. Well, they're always in a hurry, and they don't have time to just be with their patients. And I'm, I mean, we've pretty much lost the care and health care. That's right. If we don't, if we can't do the things that we want to and spend time with our patients, what happens is we will not make the. We'll be told what to do to keep those hours that we want to spend with our patients at a minimum. And as soon as you start spending too much time and the return on investment gets too low, 
you'll be told, and and this has happened many times, where doctors are dismissed from their positions because they don't see enough patients, they don't generate enough money, and they aren't looked at as profit-making. And then the doctors have to follow the the treatment for the particular diagnoses. They don't, they don't have any latitude. And well, they can't go by their own inspiration and their own ideas. Well, that's an extreme way to present it, but that's basically true. Uh, and, and it's going to get even worse when we have electronic medical, medical records where you can track everything a doctor does. And unless you get really con- over-consumed with your record-keeping to justify what you do, these committees like your medical state boards can today will come in and just get you in all kinds of trouble saying you can't do that. If you didn't put it in your record, you can't prove that's what you did, and we're going to come after you and, and make you, one, make better, better medical records, and two – we're going to make you take courses uh, so that you you don't do that. So do you think there's a solution to all this? Well, only if we evolve. I mean, the problem that we have now is that we're in a business world and, and money and control and power are the things that are selected as the things that measure success. And what we need to shift to is a service-based system where what we want to do is give and, and do the right kind of, of a thing for our patients and for the people that we live with in our community. We have to evolve from things being all about me, uh, my and mine, to about how can I give and share and build community and and help people to feel better and stay healthy. Those are the things we have to do. Doctors need to be able to spend more time with the patients so they can get their whole story and and help them with their stress because a lot of disease is from stress. I'd say the vast majority of what we see in healthcare today uh, is caused by challenges that we face at a psycho-spiritual level. And now instead of just listening to the patient, it's like, here, take this drug for it. Yeah, you're right. Well, it's time for a network station break. There's a lot more to talk about there. We just don't have time. You're listening to Prescriptions for Health. We'll be right back with more Prescriptions for Health radio and be talking about how nurturing feeds a baby's brain. The prescriptions for health. I'm Dr. Lynn Sabuto here with Nurse Vicki. It's no surprise that a nurturing mother is healthy for baby. A mother's presence and her quality of interaction, and including touch and nursing and grooming, they all mold the early growth and development of the infant's brain. And a recent study shows how attention to baby affects brain electrical activity. So give your baby lots of care and attention while you can because they grow up before you know it. You know, the relationship that a mother and a baby has is such a profound thing. And Mother Nature has a way of allowing oxytocin, that feel-good hormone, to be secreted when the mother is breastfeeding. And that bond that's there that happens almost instantly is, is almost like a magic moment. It is a magic moment. And we men don't have that same experience. It's something that we work into over time. As we become well, I fathers. think a lot of men are getting more into that, though, because now men are in the delivery room. Oh, yeah. It, it's a big deal to watch your well, wife. We had our babies. We didn't things. do that. No. 
No. What, Not what? that you had one, but I mean. <laughs> <laughs> no. no. I have great respect. I delivered 125 babies when I was going through my medical training, and they all fortunately turned out to be successful deliveries. There were no complications with any of them. And the the feeling that the mothers have with those babies is unmistakable. And the connection between the baby and the mother is is something that's just a beautiful thing to watch. Well, it's also happening and forming before the baby's even born. Exactly. You know, it's. I think it's a responsibility to a child. Mm-hmm. You know, to 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 give them this love and nurturing and and and. and and as much attention as you can, rather than getting a nanny. You know well, what those, I mean? Those formative years, I, I think, those formative weeks even, during which time the baby is first entered into this world, are critical times when a lot of pathways that are very basic begin to develop and form tracks that determine how that person's, how that baby's going to develop. And you know, too, I was thinking how sometimes moms do end up having to work and all that kind of thing. But the quality of the time that you have with your child is so important because many times what happens is people have to go to work and then they come home and they're tired and they fix dinner and they just want to get their kids to go to bed and and they want, you know, they need to rest. How was it years ago when, when people in their teens were typically getting married and raising babies when they couldn't even take care of themselves? I mean, having grandparents around and, and doing some of the raising is, is a really great thing, but there's nothing like a mother. Look at the kids that are sensory deprived, who aren't touched, who are fed with a bottle that's propped up or something uh, like that. They come out different. And the, the, the babies that rock because they're not touched at all, because they're in orphanages where there are not enough people to really take care of them, it's a disaster at, at how they are not developed properly to be able to function in well, our sometimes culture. Sometimes people worry that they're spoiling the child if they pick them up and hold them too uh, much. Well, spoil it, it. There's a big difference between spoiling and nurturing. And loving. It's loving, yeah. Well, that's, that's what the baby well, you needs. Know, we've talked in the past about how essential fatty acids nourish mm. the brain and help it to develop and so forth. But the nurturing we're finding out here does just as much. So how does it affect the neurons in the brain? Well, there was a study that was done and published in a journal called Current Biology that came out of New York University School of Medicine in July of, of 2014. And and they went ahead and, and worked with rats, which have very similar behavior patterns to humans. It's surprising. You wouldn't really think that's the case, but indeed it is, and that's why they study them. And the mothers are protecting and warming and feeding their young pups. And as they measure the neural activity in the brain, it changes depending on what that that, that, uh, mother is doing to nourish the baby. And if the mother doesn't nourish the baby, the baby doesn't get those neural experiences and those pathways built, and it doesn't come out the same. You know, being with the baby and and singing to the baby and talking to them and smiling. Mm. I've read studies where they showed how important it is to smile at at your baby because some mothers are depressed Mm -hmm. and and that can affect their their child. But even reading to an infant, people think that's silly too. It's like, oh, they don't understand what you're saying. No, but they get the feeling of what you're saying. Yeah, just like stroking them and all the things... That, that you feel that, that comes naturally, it should come naturally, it seems to me, but like um, breastfeeding. Mm. Breastfeeding offers a lot of That's really... sacred time. He- but it offers really healthy milk. Mm-hmm. You know, it's got the right percentage of fats and nutrients and all that. But the 
the process of holding the baby close like that is a bonding is a real bonding but a father could give an occasional bottle with the formula with the not with formula but i mean with the breast milk in it absolutely and he can feed the baby by holding the baby up close to him too it's the idea of holding the baby close well it's it's interesting that as our as time has gone on our culture is now having parents that are older than they were when when we were having kids. Mm -hmm. It was unusual for us not to be married by the time we were 20 or 21 or 22. Mm -hmm. And now so many marriages are in their 30s and they're still having children. And the kind of relationship that they're having is much more mature. It's much more close and and there's more time to spend with the child. Well, we never used to see uh, women carrying their babies around so much. But lately I see mothers that have them tied onto the front of them. You know, they oh, still yeah, like look like papoose. they're pregnant. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, it is. And they can do some of their chores that way too or whatever. But I think it's important for people to keep technology at bay also when they have a, have a child. Not to get those electromagnetic fields onto the child. And also well, they need to give the baby their attention. Exactly. If they're doing their cell phone and they're working on their computer, they're not giving the baby the attention. Well, being a mom is a big job. It's a huge responsibility. I don't know of any more important job that there is on the planet. I mean, those are the, these young children are going to either turn out to be children or adults later in life that are going to be responsible and, and caring and loving or they're going to be deprived and they're going to have emotional and and other problems, physical and, and spiritual, that are a big challenge that they may never overcome because of that. You've got to, you've got to teach a kid and, and do it with love and with support to be able to give them the confidence that they have that they're okay so they can be authentic. I see so many people in my practice uh, who are coming at age 50 or 60 or 70 or even 80 and they've never gotten past a lot of things that happened in their childhood because they never got this. They never got touched. They never got the support. They had to perform to be accepted as an okay person. Uh, it wasn't okay for them to have feelings. Uh, it was like uh, children would be seen and not heard. Remember that, that oh, statement? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, is, is not the right way to do it. So this business of good mothering, hardwiring the infant's brain at a very young age, is ever so right. Also, I was reading that... The baby's first sense in the womb is touch. Mm. Well, that's not a surprise, really. Maybe sound. But, you know, I was thinking about this sensory stimulation. Mm -hmm. Like this is another reason why it's important before you feed your baby to always have change the baby's diaper. Make sure the baby's diaper is clean and mm -hmm. dry when you mm -hmm. feed it so mm -hmm. they can associate that pleasure mm -hmm. of being nourished like that and loved like that and being comfortable with it. Well, I think there are a lot of things that don't happen in an ideal way. We've got so many challenges in our life. We get distracted by economics and by values that don't really support building uh, strong families and, and children that are well-adjusted. And that's why we have prisons and that are overcrowded and we have uh, problems uh, getting along and why we're having wars at higher levels. I mean, there are so many things that are that could be improved upon if we just cared more about our children and how they developed so that we teach them values that are centered around the golden rule and teach them how, how much pleasure there is in giving and sharing. 
There's a lot that goes into raising a child that's absolutely vital if we want a community that's going to be... We're creating real human beings here. Absolutely. (laughs) And most people that you know that have problems and they complain about their childhood, you know, blame a lot of it on their parents or... Oh, well, tell me one family that's that's not dysfunctional. Yeah. I mean, that's that's inevitable. So, So here we are trying to repair all the things that went wrong, okay, when we were kids. You're listening to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Len Saputa here with Nurse Vicki. And it's time for Nurse Vicki's final 2020 tip on tips to keep your brain healthy, right along with the theme of what we're doing right now. And when we come back, we'll be talking about what supplement has been shown to reduce the incidence of cognitive decline and may improve memory. And lastly, some more and exciting benefits of taking probiotics. some great tips to help keep your brain healthy like omega-3 fats the omega-3 fats they keep your dopamine levels in your brain high and they increase neuron the neurons the growth of the neurons Mm -hmm. and they increase a cerebral circulation that's a circulation in your brain right (laughs) and exercising also exercising uh, causes nerve cells to multiply and they strengthen their interconnections and protect them from damage so we got Omega-3 fats, exercising, and sleeping well because our mental energy is restored when we're sleeping and a lack of sleep can cause your brain to stop producing new cells. And then eating healthy. You know, um, your brain depends on healthy food and protein is a main source of fuel for your brain and also healthy for your brain are vitamins and minerals from fresh vegetables and limiting sugar. Hmm. Also, getting out into the sun and getting your vitamin D to maintain the health of your brain. They recently discovered that vitamin D receptors in the brain and the spinal cord and the central nervous system are present. So that's another good thing. So vitamin D also improves your brain's detoxification process. And it may play a major role in protecting infant brains from autism. Well, that's an interesting thing. Yeah. Also, turning off the TV because children under the <laughs> age of children under the age of three to watch television can impair their linguistic and social development, and it can affect their brain chemistry. And also, we know about electromagnetic fields with the computers and the cell phones and so mm-hmm. forth. And then protecting your brain from the from the cell phones because recent studies have found that cell phone users are 240 percent more prone to brain tumors. And that uh, the risk of acoustic neuroma, which is a tumor in your auditory nerve, was nearly four times greater on the side of your head where your phone was most frequently held. Fascinating study. And also um, challenging your brain. We talked about that earlier. So mind training exercises, even things like crossword puzzles and board games, just something to get you thinking. I've found that getting me thinking is taking a walk and having a conversation with somebody. Sure. And then... They interrupt me or something happens and I forget where I was and then I have to remember what I was talking about. <laughs> well, the problem is your that, hard drive is getting full, Vicki. You've got so many <laughs> things you've experienced in life. Is that it? That's it. Also, avoiding foods that contain artificial sweeteners and additives because things like aspartame or NutraSweet and MSG that are so common in processed foods, they can damage your brain. And uh, for instance... A lot of aspartame can inhibit the ability of the enzymes in your brain to function normally, and then high doses of it may lead to neurodegeneration. So being good to your brain means enjoying better health from head to toe. Right. It's lifestyle-oriented again. 
Healthy lifestyle is the most powerful medicine in the universe, right? That's our little logo. if you want to be well, pay attention (laughs) to the style in which you live your life. There you go. Now, many environmental toxins, including many commercial skincare products, contain neurotoxins and hormone disruptors that can affect our memory. Mm -hmm. And we know that fish oil is brain food. And now there's a study showing that fish oil may reduce the incidence of cognitive decline and brain atrophy in older adults, improving memory function. It's amazing how it takes so long to figure some simple things out. It's not like we haven't known this for a long time. You go back 20 or 30 years ago when we're making infant formula and the, and the Japanese companies were putting essential fatty acids in the formula and we're still using caro syrup and, and Corn pet syrup. milk. <laughs> yeah, and, and not putting much else in it. And then wondering why little Japanese babies were had higher oh. IQs okay, <laughs> than little Caucasian babies were. So fish oil is, is one of the things, particularly the DHA that's in it, is probably the most important fat. About 97% of the fat that's in uh, the brain is in the form of DHA, not EPA. EPA is found more in the heart. Also, with one person per minute diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, yeah, this is really good news to know about the fish oil. Well, yeah. I mean, there are a lot of things we can do for Alzheimer's, and fish oil is one small part of it. But what we're really looking at is how to resuscitate energy production in a failing brain. It's like it's having an electrical brownout. So there are a lot of things that we can do that can support better circulation and better nutrition for the brain. So things like niacinamide, which helps with the metabolism of making ATP, and curcumin, which can help with the inflammation of the brain, and coconut oil, which can do a lot to increase the calories that we get from fat because we can burn fat better in the brain in this setting than we can carbohydrate. And vitamin D and some of the antioxidants that are important, they're all things that are important to be able to keep energy production and circulation going. Well, these are really good things to know because there's no effective treatment like for Alzheimer's disease. Not in the mainstream. And the drugs have side effects. are things to do. That's what I mean. I yeah. say it's good to have these alternatives Absolutely. to do because the drugs have side effects and they're not very effective. Sure. And there are even more things than that, too. We can do things to increase oxygen utilization in the brain itself, in the mitochondria, which are where which is where we make these uh, the the ATP. We can repair the leaky gut and the leaky membranes in the brain that set the stage for causing poor ATP production. And watch what we eat and avoid toxic exposures. These are all things that can do a lot to support uh, treating somebody to have optimal function of their brain before they start to deteriorate. You know, there's over 5 million people in the U.S. that have Alzheimer's disease, and it's the sixth leading cause of death in the United States. So, you know, we really need to go for this fish oil. <laughs> well, fish oil is just one more of the things that, that was mentioning. And, 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 and the in this particular study, and all the other things. Yeah. Well, absolutely, that's right. Uh, it's also interesting in the study that was done that they found that w- when they were measuring what, what people were doing in terms of cognitive decline, uh, and they were doing neuropsychiatric tests and doing MRIs every six months, uh, in a group of people that were normal and people who had mild cognitive impairment and those that also had Alzheimer's disease, they found that it was useful uh, to, in in people to take, it was useful for people to take fish oil as long as they didn't have the genetic makeup that put them at a higher risk for developing 
uh, Alzheimer's disease, which means the APOE4 gene, which a lot of us know about because we know that there's a much higher incidence of cognitive decline and Alzheimer's in that setting. And the reason is because when you have a defect in this gene, probably what happens is there's a lack of cysteine. Let's get a little complicated, but there's a lack of cysteine because the APOE4 gene normally should have cysteine molecules in it. And that's important because it's what chelates mercury out of the brain. And we have a lot of mercury in our environment. And so that's another thing besides fish oil that we should be paying attention to. Well, you know, scientists are hard at work trying to discover the benefits of probiotics. Those are the friendly microbes in our intestinal tract. Mm -hmm. And two more studies just came out with even more benefits. And one showed how they can safely reduce blood pressure and another showing how probiotics can help with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is related to obesity and diabetes. And it's encouraging to know that probiotics can have so many healthy effects without the concern of side effects. Well... I think that one of the things that was really overlooked in healthcare for until recently, and I, by recently I mean maybe the last five or ten years, uh, the ecosystem in the gut has thousands of different kinds of microbes uh, in it, and uh, and with different species of microbes, and actually more metabolic activity in the stool than any organ system in the body. So whatever we have that's in uh, in our stool in terms of microbe makeup is really important and there's a lot we should do to try and keep it uh, in a place that's normal, which means don't do things to disturb that ecosystem. Don't take antibiotics if you can help it. Stay away from uh, pills that will affect the what, what's there. Make sure you're not consuming foods, say, for example, if you're uh, lactose intolerant or if you're gluten sensitive. All these change the makeup of uh, of your intestinal tract's microflora, and that has a huge effect on what's happening in our in our body. So that's what we're that's what we're faced with when we're looking at at the ecosystem of the gut. Uh, and it's fortunate that finally gastroenterologists are beginning to get the idea that this is something that we should be trying to preserve. So the use of probiotics now is becoming more mainstream. It's almost as though the the GI doctors thought they invented them now. I remember 15 years ago when we had com- I had conversations with a number. <laughs> they were always of, resistant. They were always, always. They were telling me I was crazy. I remember some people who had C. diff in their stool, but they weren't sick from it. And they said, "You've got to treat them with antibiotics." And I said, "That's the very last thing I want to do, because you may kill the C. difficile microbe that's there, but you're also going to be killing off the normal flora that's there. And what's going to be left?" is all those organisms that are resistant to the antibiotics. So now you've got a real problem. And not that only that, develop. the friendly bacteria crowd out the bad stuff. Well, that's right. Uh, and and that's, that's a big thing. And they also do a lot of things that preserve uh, the internal metabolism of the body. You have to look at the stool as the interface between the external environment and the internal environment of the body. And so w- when these people studied the effects of... Uh, probiotics had on inflammatory markers in mice, they found that those that were on probiotics did a heck of a lot better uh, because they had less in the way of inflammatory markers like TNF, uh, tumor necrosis factor, and interleukin-6 than those that were on placebos. So there's it, it's an interesting interplay between those. And Well, I think it's exciting about the blood pressure. Well, that too. Because, you know, most of the blood pressure medications have pretty toxic side effects and or side effects that 
bother people. Like it makes them tired and, you know. Well, it can do a lot of things that are a problem. They can upset your metabolism. And even the diuretics, they raise your cholesterol. They make you at risk for type 2 diabetes. They increase your risk for getting gout because they raise uric acid levels. They deplete your body of magnesium and of potassium. And so if you're just trying to solve the problem of lowering blood pressure by lowering the volume and dehydrating you, basically, it's at the price of all these other things that are happening. Plus and it's a trade-off. you have to go to the bathroom all the time. Well, it, well in, while you're losing the fluid to start with, after you're on maintenance, that's not much of an issue. So when we're looking at, at uh, treating hypertension... Now, probiotics wouldn't be something that would treat somebody who had rather substantial hypertension because it doesn't lower it that much. But it's something. It's a start. Yeah, it's a start. I mean, it lowered the systolic pressure by three to four points and the diastolic pressure by two to three points. But then if you do that and you exercise and and do things like eating a healthy diet and getting enough rest and sleep and reducing your stress, all those things add up. The lifestyle things in combination with a healthy... It's like, what's the number that's going to tip you over, you know? So everything that you do to help it makes a difference. Well, it's definitely cumulative. So... The fact that probiotics lower blood pressure, and this is published in a journal called Hypertension in July of, of 2014, to me was a big surprise. Well, it even says that it, it regulates fluid balance. It does a lot of things that we've yet to discover. And again, it's that interplay between the microbes that live uh, in our gut with the external world and with the internal world. And it has a lot to do with immunity. It has to do with protecting the lining of the gut so it it doesn't have leaks in it. And that may sound weird, but there's this thing called leaky gut syndrome, where if the pores of the gut are too big, it lets in even whole bacteria. I mean, that's that's a huge thing to say. It lets them into the rest of the body. And it also lets in big molecules that shouldn't get there. And if two-thirds of the immune system is in your gut, you're looking at something that can have a profound effect on what gets into your body and how healthy you can be. We also know that probiotics help with irritable bowel syndrome, uh, uh, bowel disease. Inflammatory ul- bowel disease. Yeah, ulcerative colitis, immunity. It builds your immunity. It fights inflammation. <laughs> it's good for digestion. And That's right. You've become a real expert. Anxiety even. I remember we did an article once how it helped with anxiety and diarrhea and well, if the wrong microbes live there, it can set the stage for getting type two diabetes or heart attacks. I mean, it's I mean, what and even the, a lot of drugs that people take that they don't even realize that can cause uh, a problem with your uh, microflora. Well, there's no question that they influence what's going on there. So we've got a, a big issue. But Lactobacillus and Bifidobacter; those are the main ones. I well, think. Well, at the end of the show, we're going to have to stop. So. We want to remind you that we'll be back to talk about what's new in the news and health the first and third Mondays of every month on prn.fm and drsabuta.com from 10 to 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 to 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Prescriptions for Health will also be available 24-7 on prn.fm. And if you enjoyed today's radio show and you'd like to have more information on the topics we discussed in video and free access to more than 2,500 audio and video files, click on Health Headlines on the drsaputo.com homepage. And remember, a healthy lifestyle is the most powerful healer in the universe. So if you want to be well, pay attention to the style in which you live your life. Take care. We'll see you next time. 